0: Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. I am super excited to be with you today, 5 July 2023, and we are 13 days away from book launch for hope is the first dose. Big cheer, big hurrah for that. I'm so excited about it. I started writing this book in April of 2021 sitting by the fire with Harvey and Lewis who were seven months old at the time. And I had this burden on my heart. To help you understand how important it is to be able to find your way back to hope and peace and maybe even happiness again after these massive things happen in your life, like us losing our son Mitch. I had this burden because I realized in my book, I've seen the end of you. I told you that I'd been studying people with impossible problems like glioblastoma and head injuries. And then I told you that we lost our son Mitch and I kind of described a little bit about what that was like and the fact that we kind of found our faith again and, and sort of made it through. I gave you the what but it dawned on me that I didn't give you the how and I, I didn't feel like I had been a very good doctor to you. I didn't offer you a plan. I didn't show you the procedure, the 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 surgery that it took to get to where we could say that we had lives again, hopeful, maybe even happy lives again. I didn't show you that. So this book is not memoir. It starts in, with vulnerability about our story, but I give you a reliable, testable, repeatable working solution, a treatment plan for how you can put your life back together when trauma and tragedy and these other massive things happen. And I'm grateful that a publisher came alongside Waterbrook, the great team of professionals that helped us with, I've seen the interview. I'm grateful that we have incredible publicists and marketing people and editors and agents and all those folks, because it takes a whole team to bring you a story like this. And friend, I'm telling you, it's going to help. And I told you I was going to give you all these doses of hope leading up to book launch, 16 doses in my newsletter on Sunday. And if if you're not getting my newsletter, check it out, drleewarren.substack.com. On Sunday, in this week's weekly newsletter, I told you I was going to give you 16 daily doses of hope leading up to the book launch, and this is the next one. Today, we're going to talk about unsolvable problems and downstream goals and the time when it seems like everything's impossible and maybe even too big For Jesus to be sovereign over. Maybe sometimes we feel like the problem that we're facing is uniquely impossible. And it leaves us with a big question. Why God? And we don't know what to do. And when you find yourself in that position where you don't know what to do, I'm going to today give you a story from college from my physical chemistry class, which is the, the worst thing I've ever been through academically. p was harder than anything I did in medical school. Two semesters of p with Jim Baxter. Shout out, Dr. Baxter, if you're out there listening somewhere. One of the smartest people I ever met, by the way. So physical chemistry gives us this understanding that some problems are unsolvable. And Jesus' sovereignty teaches us that impossible things are actually possible. And learning some lessons that I've learned from running, that downstream goals sometimes hamper us and hinder us from actually achieving the main goal. And I'm going to try to tie all these things together in just a few minutes for you. And I'm going to leave you with one of the songs on the Hope is the First Dose playlist, which I'm going to share with you in a few days for the pre-orders. That if you pre-ordered the book, I'm going to share the Spotify playlist with you. And you'll be able to have some of the music that helped me write the book and helps me resonate with the ideas in the book and and maybe will help you too as you journal and study and think and, and pray through some of the ideas that I'm going to give you and hope is the first dose. We're going to do all that stuff this morning because it's time to learn to deal with unsolvable problems, especially the ones that make us ask, why God? And the reason is, is because there is a treatment plan and hope is the first dose because you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is, my friend, Please subscribe so you never miss an episode, and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Okay, so I started running again recently. I was never a runner. Lisa convinced me that I could run years ago. We started running together, and Lisa's a great runner. She. Saw my son, our son Mitchell, run, and she was like, "You have the body of a runner. You have the capacity to run. You have the 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 ability to run." He was like, "No, I don't. I don't think so." Well, Mitch ended up being a great cross cross country runner, and so he, she saw in him that ability, and he did it. And when she said to me, "You got, you know, you're not super tall, but you got long legs. I think you had a good stride. You could, you could learn to run." And so, over the years, I actually found that I enjoyed running, which was a great shock to me so, as a child, I didn't think I enjoyed sort of sports and physical things all that much, but it turned out that I do love to run and then, of course, you know, after Mitch died, we kind of got life sort of waylays you and, and then for a while we became inactive and then we moved and then we moved again and we moved again we kept moving around in Wyoming and we finally ended up in Nebraska and it just did some period of time after the quarantine and all that had gone by and I just got really inactive and, and both of us said hey we got to get we got to get this squared away like I'm going to be you know, giving talks and doing speeches and speaking in churches around the book launch, and i got to get back in shape. And I'm just tired of of inactivity. So we decided to start working out again. Lisa led the way and started a program a few months ago, this app where you have all these daily tasks that you can do. And and it basically sort of puts you in this mode of having to to focus on physical activity and, and sort of uh, discipline in a number of areas. And so I started following her lead. As always, she leads the way, and I <laughs> find myself doing better things because of her encouragement. And so, anyway, I started running again. And every time I start running, um, I decide that I need to go faster or farther. I set all these goals for myself, and every time I go out for a run, I, I was like, I want to go this distance. I want to try to hit this pace. I want to try to run this far before I stop for a sip of water or this far before I walk a little bit. And I start having all these downstream goals from the primary goal. Well, the last time we were in San Antonio... We went back a few weeks ago for uh, a combined birthday party for three of our people, two of our daughters and one of our grandsons had birthdays that are close to one another. so we went down and had an amazing uh, time together with our whole family in one place at one time, which is getting harder to do as they all move and separate and grow up and you know get jobs and do all that stuff and so we we had this great time together, and as we were down there had a conversation with my brother-in-law, Ronnie. Ronnie works for USAA and is Lisa's sister's husband, Jessica's husband. And Ronnie said, hey, I'm going to try to run a half marathon. I've never done that before, but in December, there's a half marathon in San Antonio. I need somebody to, to commit to train and run with me. And I said, I'm in. I want to do that. So that gave me a goal, right? A goal of needing to start running more diligently and consistently and training for a distance I've never run. I, I did a half marathon on a treadmill one time, which is crazy. Don't do that. Get really weird blisters on your feet. But I did it just to see if I could do it a few years ago. But I've never actually run a half marathon outside with other people. So I committed to do that with Ronnie. So that means I have now some, some skin in the game as I've made a promise and I've got to start training. Well, what I've noticed... As I run, is it, it's always really hard the first when when I'm out of shape and haven't run in a while. It's hard. The first mile is hard. Your body's telling you you're tired and you can't do it and everything feels heavy. And then somehow around the end of that first mile, things start feeling a little bit easier. Now, I've never experienced anything like what they say is a runner's high. I've never found that. But what I do find is that after about a mile, my body starts relaxing and my breath gets under control and it starts feeling easier to go the second and third mile. But then what I start doing, and I'm a kind of a type A hard charger, as you might imagine. And I start putting these goals on myself. Okay, well, I want to run the first three miles in this pace. I want to get under this certain number of minutes per mile. And then I want to run out to four and a half or five miles before i take a step or stop for a minute or take a breath or walk any. I want, I want to make sure I can run the every step of that distance before I do this. And then I have a time goal for the five miles. And then I have a time goal for the six miles. And I've gotten up to where I can run 10K again w- without having to stop. But I've noticed, especially on the treadmill, when I do indoors, if it's raining or something, and I do indoor training on the treadmill, I find myself setting these second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth order goals for a run. And then what happens is if I can't do one of them, if I like miss a mark, I can't quite push through and get that one thing done, then sometimes I I mentally feel like I've failed at the run and I'll stop. I'll quit. I'll switch and do something on the floor, do some weights or something else. And I'll end up not accomplishing the entire goal for the big run that I had. Like I was going to do six miles and I end up missing this second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth order goal. And it'll discourage me and I'll stop. And I won't make it to even some of the earlier goals in that in that chain of goals that I had set, because the downstream goal in my mind became more important or became necessary to complete the entire thing. And I realized the other day as I was running that that's kind of silly, and it sort of reminded me of this of this thing that Lisa and I've been talking about this this AB that she was using. And I think there's some great value in setting these big goals, but but the problem with with that, with the with the app and with my realizing that downstream goals uh, were keeping me from accomplishing my major goal, is that sometimes when we set too many parameters around something, we forget that the number one thing is to accomplish the first goal. And if we don't accomplish some of the downstream goals, then we end up shooting ourselves in the foot and don't get the first one done. So a different way to look at it then would be to say, don't let your downstream goals inhibit you from achieving your primary goal. So for example, if my primary goal is to accomplish a a half marathon, right? But then I set a time goal in there of I want to hit the half of the half at a certain time or I want to make sure I run nine miles before I stop for a sip of water or whatever it might be. If I don't accomplish that and I get discouraged then I might end up not completing the entire thing. Right? So in other words, if I need to complete thirteen miles but I mess up and I don't hit a time goal and I stop and don't make it through the 13 miles, then I haven't accomplished the half marathon, which was my real goal, my big goal. Does this make sense? I'm telling you that to say this. Downstream goals somehow, sometimes get inverted in order of priority, and we forget that the priority is the actual underlying big goal. Complete the run. Finish the thing. Achieve the the mission. Cross the finish line. Why am I telling you that? Well, hope is the first dose is coming in 13 days. And in that book, we talk about trauma and tragedy and massive things, these big events that happen in your life. They don't have to be medical. They don't have to be somebody died. They don't have to be a diagnosis. It can be you lost a dream, somebody cheated on you, you the pandemic took out your business, you you've failed to achieve a big financial goal, and you're struggling, you're in trouble in some way. It can be an emotional wound it can be an emotional trauma somebody abused you or somebody abandoned you or deserted you or or, or, you know trespassed on you in some way that hurt your heart and it's hard to move on so what happens then is sometimes we forget the primary goal after trauma and tragedy and other massive things has to be that we survive it has to be Because sometimes people don't. Sometimes people are so sad that they commit suicide or they open a bottle or they develop a habit or something happens and they they stay stuck. They never learn how to heal and move, move forward in their lives again and they get stuck. And they don't survive. Either physically they literally don't survive or they just never come alive again. So the primary goal and trauma, tragedy and other massive things after TMT like that has to be survive. Right. If you don't survive, it doesn't matter what happens next. So you have to survive. But then at the same time, you have to learn how to step forward and learn how to live again. And that's the big goal. Right. So obviously, surviving and coming alive again are two parts of the same issue. And it should not be acceptable to us to just keep breathing. We should want to come alive again. Right. So we don't want to set too many downstream goals and put all that pressure on ourselves right away. It's this acute wound that we have where we say, I've got to survive and then then I've got to learn how to start living again. So how do I do that? Well, it's just like in learning how to run, that first mile is really hard, that, that, that surviving the first mile is difficult. But once you've done that, once you realize, hey, I've run a mile now three or four days in a row, it's starting to get a little bit easier. You'll start seeing that as you deal with your massive things again. You'll start saying, hey, I've managed to breathe and put my pants on and maybe even brush my teeth for three or four days in a row. Now, maybe I can start remembering that I can pray, and I can seek help. And I can ask God to come alongside me. Maybe I can start finding some promises to grab onto again. Maybe I can start understanding that my family still loves me and I've still got a future and I've still got a hope and there's, there's still opportunity out there for me. And over time, you'll start adding the secondary and tertiary goals to just remembering to breathe again. You'll automate that breathing process again. You'll start coming alive again every morning when you wake up like making new synapses and getting your brain turned on more easily. And it'll become easier and easier just like that first and second mile become on the treadmill because you've not let those downstream goals become so overwhelming. You haven't said – and this is ha- this happens after trauma it, it really happens after you lose a child like it's overwhelming because you think i can never be your brain will lie to you i can never be happy again there's no way i might as well just give up i'm never going to be okay again she left me and nobody will ever love me again i'll never be able to to win her back you, you, you're going to start hearing these things that don't turn out to be true all the time and if you give in to them then nothing else that happens in your life will matter because that first thing is you didn't survive You didn't come alive again because you let the overwhelming impossibility, it feels like, of all those other things that matter to you, coming alive again, finding hope again, going back to work, creating a new life. I have a friend, Clarissa Mall, whose husband died, and she had four young children, and she's about to get married again. And it took her a long time to realize that she was still young and she still had a life to live and she still had a family and she needed a partner in her life and she started dating again. And and God's written a new beautiful story. She'll never stop grieving over losing her husband. She never will. But she learned how to come alive again. But that took a whole bunch of smaller steps to get to that place where she could live again. She had to survive first. She had to get her hands around her kids and her family and her life again and learn how to make a living again first before all those other things could happen. So she had sat in the early days and said, I'm never going to be okay. I'm never going to fall in love again. I'm never going to be able to find anybody else. I'm never going to be able to have a partner. I'm, I'm always going to be alone. I'm always going to be a widow. I'm always going to be sad. I'm Some of those things are true, right? They, they mix in with the pain. But she learned to first take care of the first goal, which is living, breathing, seeing, learning how to feel hopeful again, before you can take on those big things like, can I be happy again? Now, let me pivot for a second. I think I've made that point. When I was in college, I have a biochemistry degree from Oklahoma Christian University, and that was back in the days when the biochemistry degree was the hardest in the biological sciences to to achieve and that you had to take college level physics and you had to take analytical chemistry and organic chemistry and physical chemistry which was the capstone course two semesters of pchem but before you could have pchem you had to take analytical chemistry for two semesters you had to have two semesters of physics two semesters of calculus trigonometry all this stuff to get ready to be able to handle physical chemistry well what in the world is physical chemistry Physical chemistry is the branch of chemistry that only super nerds are allowed to... I'm sorry. I don't mean to say that. Hey, if you're a physical chemist out there, mad props to you, high respect, because you guys are geniuses. We're also kind of nerds. I mean, let's just admit it, right? Um, Physical chemistry, friend, is the study of how matter behaves on a molecular and atomic level and how chemical reactions occur it's the the understanding of the physical properties of atoms and molecules the way chemical reactions work and what those properties revealed reveal and in order to do it you've got to understand physics you got to understand quantum mechanics you under, have to understand high level mathematics in order to be able to solve these big problems so if you want to develop a new chemical compound and use it to develop some kind of commercial property some sort of commercial uh, use for it and business around it then you've got to understand all the different ways that works and what the reactions inside that process are and what that material does and what you can understand about it because you're not going to build a new plastic to make an airplane wing out of unless you really understand it, because you got to know how it's going to fail and what's going to happen to it. And so down at the quantum level, they have to understand all the ways that, that that substance interacts with everything else in order to be able to understand it, predict it, and then commercialize it, right? That's the understanding. That's, that's what P. is. But on the ground, in college, it's a whole bunch of crazy math equations, to figure out what the heat transfer between two molecules is going to be and, and all of that. And I remember a test. It was in second semester of pchem and there were these two twins in the class with me. There were only six of us in this class. It was a senior-level course in college, right? So by the time you get to those senior-level courses, especially in a small college like mine, there will only be a handful of students in there. Because most people are, that are going to go to medical school, for example, they do pre-med, which is basically biology degree, and it's the easy path to get to medical school. I don't know why I did biochemistry. I guess part of me thought I wasn't going to get into medical school and I was going to need to become a chemist or something and and have some other kind of backup job if I couldn't get into med school. So I wanted to take the hardest thing I could take to prepare me in case I didn't get in so I would have another career alternative. I saw myself going and getting a Ph.D. or something and becoming a chemist or working for Dow or something like that. So anyway, that was probably a protection mechanism. But I could have just taken the easy route and done pre-med and general biology and gotten in that way but it didn't. So I ended up taking this PChem course and I remember and I made an A in PChem 1. And the second semester, Dr. Baxter, the PhD who was in charge, basically told us none of y'all are going to make an A in this course. I'm going to make it essentially impossible for you to make an A. Well, I did. Me and one other guy did it. And I think that's the way that I made it through school. Was I always thought I was that something was going to be impossible, so I worked like it was going to be impossible and it turned out to be possible. So I just kept busting that going after it, but I remember very clearly in a test in the second semester of physical chemistry, I was in this problem, we were supposed to prove out an equation and derive the solution to this problem that he put forth, and I heard a little sound and I looked over and one of those twins had a little tear running down her cheek, she was just kind of silently crying as we went through this exam, because it was so hard. It was like your dream of becoming a doctor was dying right in front of you because you were never going to be able to solve this problem. But I realized as we went through that this particular problem was unsolvable. Every math equation that I knew, every derivative that we had learned, every calculus integration that we had learned, every proof of concept that we had learned that he had taught us was not working out. I checked my math. I double and triple checked it. I turned the page over and started again and tried a different, different way to solve it. And I basically, the time was running out, and I couldn't find a solution to this problem. And I remember that I wrote at the bottom. I proved all my work out and got down to where I should have been able to put an answer down. And I basically said, "This is an unsolvable problem. I can't solve it with the math that I know and the chemistry that you've taught us. This can't be solved." And I ran out of time and I turned my paper in. And I thought, there you go. I failed him 2. I'm never going to get into medical school. Well, it turns out that was the right answer. The right answer was that the equation can't be solved. And he did that to make a point. And the point is that sometimes there's not an answer to the problem with which you're faced, sometimes it's impossible. And he did that. Dr. Baxter did that in p to teach us that some problems in physics and chemistry can't be solved. And once you realize, you have to be smart enough to realize that it's time to pivot and move on to a different problem. That, That there are times when you can't fix the situation with which you've been faced. We talked the other day about Paul in the New Testament. He was given a thorn in the flesh that he prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God to take away. And ultimately God said, I'm not taking this away. My grace is sufficient for you. He had to come to grips with the fact, just like Tina Tisdell that we talked about the other day, the new character in my book, she had to, was faced with a situation that she couldn't accept because the answer was unacceptable to her. And the answer was, you are going to have a headache, but you don't have a brain tumor anymore. But She couldn't accept that, but she had to say, I want to not have a headache because I think if I have a headache, it means I'm sick, and if I'm sick, then I can't have a life And she couldn't live with the fact that she was going to have some residual pain, even though she was cured of her disease. And so we have sometimes a situation where God says you can't have that, a problem where you can't solve that. And I'm telling you, if you've lost a child, if you've lost a spouse, if you've been through these massive things, there's going to be a part of that that won't ever stop. It won't ever go away. I know when I'm an old man, I'm still going to be sad about losing my son. That's an impossible thing to get rid of. You, you can't. And so when, you, when you're running that equation and you're saying to yourself, how do I get over this and how do I stop hurting over this? Well, the answer is you can't. But at the same time, there's another way to pivot and still find the ability to breathe and live and build hope and build meaning and purpose and even happiness again. You're going to be different but guess what? That that problem that you faced and learned how to pivot from can become something that adds value and meaning and purpose to other people's lives, and that can start to become a thing that helps you to build and grow into the future. That's why Jesus, when he came back from the grave, by the way, still had nail holes in his hands, and he still had a wound in his side because he knew that Thomas was going to need to touch those wounds in order to believe again. Thomas, devastated by the loss of his friend and his Savior, said, I need to put my hands in those wounds or I'm not going to believe that he's alive again. And Jesus said, if you want to know me, touch my side, right? He was able to help somebody else because of his persistent woundedness, even though he lived again. And sometimes, friend, you're going to have to face the fact that it's impossible for you to solve the problem you've been handed, and you're going to have to pivot and grow and learn to live again, even with that wound, even with that Thing That you can't solve. So don't let the downstream goals that we talked about a while ago of I have to be don't make yourself think I have to be perfectly healed. I have to move past this. I've got to forget that it happened to me because guess what? Trauma doesn't stop happening to you. Remember what Gabor Mate told you? I I read that to you the other day. He said, trauma is not what happened to you. Trauma is how you responded to what happened to you. You can heal from how you responded. You can do self-brain surgery. You can learn neuroplasticity. You, You learn how to apply your neuroplasticity. and You can make new synapses and you can learn to have a different response to the memories and the things that you've encountered before. But you can't take them away. It will never stop being true that I lost a son. It will never stop being true that I went through multiple mortar attacks and saw horrible things in the war. That won't stop being true. So if my definition of healing had to be that those things stopped happening, then that's impossible. And that's what Tina Tisdale got stuck on. And that's what the girl in my in my chem class was crying because she couldn't get to the answer that the problem wasn't solvable. And that was the right answer. When I wrote that on the paper, Dr. Baxter said, Good job, you got it. And I said, Well, what I wrote down was that you can't solve this problem. And he said, That's the answer. The answer is the problem can't be solved. And so you have to learn how to open your eyes to the fact that sometimes problems aren't solvable. Now, let me give you the good news. I read an article from Chuck Swindoll from back in 2018. Chuck Swindoll, of course, a really well known pastor and writer, writing is really encouraging. And he wrote this article called seven impossibilities that Jesus made possible. I'll put a link in the show notes. Really great look at what Jesus did. Jesus had dominion and sovereignty over the physical things that he had created in the universe because he's the author of the universe, right? He's a look at John 1. Jesus was the guy who when God said let there be light, Jesus made the light. So he can make stuff that seems impossible. Well, Chuck Swindoll wrote about this, when we're faced with a series of great problems, impossible problems, Jesus sometimes can step in and take sovereignty over those. And he gave seven examples. Power over quality. At the wedding in Cana, Jesus made wine from water, and the wine he made was the best wine anybody had ever had. It was, it was the best wine there was. Because Jesus can turn something bad into something good. He has power over distance. When the royal official came to him in Cana and in Cana, John 4, Jesus healed the the child, or the servant rather, even though he wasn't there. He said, it was his son. He said, go home and your son will be well when you get there. Jesus had power and sovereignty over distance. He had power over time. The, The guy had been laying there by the pool in Bethesda in John 5 for 38 years, and Jesus said, get up and walk. And from a medical standpoint, this is fascinating because if somebody's been immobile for 38 years, it's a lot more than just paralysis. There's going to be atrophy. There's going to be tendons that are, that are shortened and, and calcified. There's going to be muscles that have wasted. There's going to be joints and bones that have become osteoporotic for lack of bearing weight. Like Jesus snapped his fingers. It doesn't say he snapped his fingers. Jesus spoke the word, and the guy got up and walked which means he was sovereign over bone density and muscle atrophy and joint freezing and all those things, and spinal cord wasting and nerves that had forgotten their synapses and all that stuff. Jesus said the word, and this guy was healed. So Jesus had power over time and biology, a power over quantity. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, right? He could make more out of a situation than there seemed to be. Even possible. He made it possible. He had power over nature. When the wind was blowing, the disciples were frightened. He said, still, peace be still. In John 6, he had power over misfortune. When the guy was blind since birth, he had no hope. Jesus said, open your eyes and you can see. In John 9, he had power over death. When Lazarus died, Jesus spoke the word and Lazarus came back to life. I'm telling you these things to say this. Sometimes your problem is unsolvable but you have a God who specializes in solving unsolvable problems. Sometimes his answer seems to be no, like with Paul with the thorn in the flesh. Sometimes he says, I'm not going to take that particular thing from you, but remember what we talked about from from Pastor Keller, from, from Timothy Keller. He said, God always answers our prayers either with yes or with what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew about it. And that gives me great hope friend, because sometimes I want the answer to be yes and it's just not yes. but like The prayer I prayed, it's silly it seems like, but I prayed that Mitch would come back to life or that I would find that he wasn't really gone. And that seems that seemed silly because he was really gone and he didn't come back to life. But somehow Jesus is still answering my prayer that if I'd known everything he knew, it would have been a different kind of prayer. And so he's saying yes to that one. I don't know how to explain that. There's no economy in which you can understand that when you've lost a child or lose a parent or lose a sibling or lose a spouse. You you don't know. But somehow, over time, those promises begin to feel true, and they begin to turn out to be true when you study what's really happening around you in the world. God makes the impossible possible sometimes, and he makes you understand and be able to live with and live again with answers that seem like no's but are really... Good answers from a good father and a great physician. There's a song by Austin French that we put on the Hope is the First Dose playlist called Why God? And it works this question of why around. And it starts with why God does all this stuff happen and people die and, and things happen and people are brokenhearted and people fall apart. And ultimately says, I don't know why, but I know why I have to turn to you. That reminded me of that Oswald Chambers quote when he says, you're either going to fear God or you're going to fear everything else. Like like if you have a healthy relationship with God, you're not afraid of anything else. But if you don't, then everything is terrifying because if your life is built on how much money you have or how if your children are healthy or if your marriage is okay, if your life is built on those things, you can lose those things. That's why my subtitle of I've Seen the End of You was The Things We Think We Know. When you lose those things that you're certain of, If your life isn't built on something that's more solid and unchangeable, then you can lose everything. So this morning, to recap, we talked about the danger in having our lives built, our our goal of success built on all the downstream goals and too many choices in the app, and we have to flip back to understand that we must accomplish the primary goal of living again before we can move on to anything else. And sometimes the answer is that there's not an answer and we have to then be able to pivot to understanding a life without the ability to answer that first question or that first prayer or that first wish. We have to be under, be able to put our lives back together even when the problem is unsolvable. And that's the self-brain surgery of learning how to create synapses around new realities. And we have to learn how to say, why God? And work through that and not just give up. And Chuck Swindoll gave us seven different ways that Jesus can solve impossible situations. And I think Hope is the First Dose is going to do that for you too. It's going to give you a treatment plan for how to make good changes in your heart and in your mind when you're faced with these impossible situations and how you can come alive again and how you can use that woundedness to help other people and how you can learn to see the light again by flexing those hope muscles of memory and movement. Listen, friend, we're 13 days away from the book coming out. But every day between now and then, I'm going to give you a dose of hope. And this is another one. When it seems impossible, remember that sometimes the problem is unsolvable, but the answer still is always yes in Him. There's always a path back to hope and happiness. And you can't change your life until you change your mind. The good news is, my friend, you can find the path back to hope. And that's always the first dose. But you have to start today. Why, God, do people have to die? A daughter or a son, sudden and so young, long before their time. Why, God, do people fall apart? A promise and a reign becomes a broken thing, a road that got too hard. I don't understand, but